0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next edition of the Sports Pro Streamtime podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead at Sports Pro, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Now, Nick, you have just gotten off of a 14-hour flight, and the first thing you could think of doing was joining the Sports Pro Stream Time podcast. The content never sleeps. It truly doesn't, Nick. So I hope, if nothing else, maybe you got a little bit of sleep on the plane.
1: I did, actually. I had the best flight uh, flight sleep I have had pretty much in history, in my history. Uh, normally, I can barely get more than an hour here or there, but uh, I ended up only watching two films in 14 hours. So uh, the rest of it, I was either asleep or trying to fall asleep um, so uh, I'm pretty happy with that I feel pretty great actually but pretty the first time I've come back from a one of those overnight flights and feeling uh, feeling all right uh, I think the next few days might be a bit, a bit of a challenge on readjusting <laughs> when when to sleep and when not to because um, I found it quite difficult over over in, in Singapore God I only slept like three hours one night and four or five I don't think I got more than five hours while I was on the ground I think I slept
0: more in the plane than I did uh, over the over any one night while I was there. Well, we are going to speak more about Singapore and the APAC region, more specifically on the sports business side of things. But one thing I do want to know, Nick um, anyone that hasn't listened to the podcast quite frequently, you and I use food analogies. That's mostly because I'm American, which means I like to eat. Did you get to uh, have any nice food while you were out in Singapore? I mean, when I went out last year, I'll admit, never been to anywhere in Asia before. Um, It did feel slightly overwhelming. But the one great thing about Singapore is everything's in English. So you kind of get to explore without maybe necessarily being overwhelmed. So did you get any good food while you're out there?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point actually. I hadn't really thought about it before. But yeah, the fact that everything's in English, you can pretty be pretty comfortable. You you know what you're signing up to, not accidentally order some um, pig's foot, pig's trotter, which was one of the things I saw on the on the menu. Um, yeah, I, I, look, I I try and mix around the different types of Asian food. Um, bit of Korean, bit of Japanese, bit of whatever. Just looks 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 and sounds tasty at the time, but. Took my chances and just ate whatever whatever restaurant I end up popping to. But uh, the great thing is, if you go to some of those hawker not stands but places where they serve the market stalls that they have, you can get some incredible food for like a few a few dollars, um, which is more than a, than you need for, for for most days when I'm on the ground there. So I was pretty happy with the, the array of food you get in Singapore. It's a real nice nice mix of different Asian uh, cuisines. Uh, that's for sure. Although I ha- yeah, actually, definitely. I should add that uh, one one day I went. Uh, and ate an Australian breakfast at the Boomerang restaurant, which for those that are familiar with Singapore, is a 21-hour open restaurant and bar that opens from 6 a.m. and closes at 3 a.m. So you have, <laughs> you have breakfast available, then that shifts into lunch, and then they have dinner, and then they have a nightclub and bar going all night long. Apparently, last year's event ended up Putting on there from about one in the evening from what I've been told. So nice to mix in a bit of uh, authentic uh, Asian cuisine with a good old-fashioned Aussie breakfast.
0: So quick question, mostly for the British folks in the audience. What's the difference between an Aussie breakfast and say perhaps the traditional full English breakfast? Oh,
1: oh. What a difference there is um, well let's say there is normally poached eggs, normally some avocado avocado is a big a big go-to that's probably the main different ingredients you get bacon and you get um, sourdough toast and those sorts of things so a fancier version of uh, perhaps an old uh, an English breakfast you wouldn't normally get sausage uh, or black pudding or anything like that which is a classic uh, staple in the, in the English breakfast but normally avocado you could get some feta on there as well yeah so it's a a little bit of a just a modernization a little bit healthier a little bit less cholesterol than perhaps what you get in a, a standard English breakfast
0: well, I'm going to stop talking about food because as of the time of recording, I've not had lunch yet. So we're going to move into business so I can distract myself. So this year I didn't get to travel out to Singapore, Nick. But perhaps, you know, having just gotten back from it, everything fresh on your mind. What were maybe some of your key takeaways? You know, we talk about our, our OTT event, which is now Sports Pro Madrid. So we'll go ahead and plug that. We've also still got the OTT USA Summit, which may also have a similar renaming. But we spent quite a bit of time talking about the Western media space. What were perhaps some of your takeaways being out in the APAC region?
1: Yeah, what was uh, actually an interesting exercise um, beforehand was that George uh, George, uh, on the from the Sports Pro podcast and um, who leads on our content for our events, we did an intro session, a kickoff session for the event where we run through uh, compare and contrast the East versus West. And what we started to uncover um, going into that is, is some real interesting insights around just the, the gap and disparity with the the audience size. So, you know, Asian audiences are obviously way bigger, and we got some great insight on the numbers on, on how that shapes nearly, nearly three to two to one, two, three to one. Um, but also, on the flip of that, is the average revenue generated per user it's nearly 10 times the amount in western markets than it is in asia so mass mass audiences really really difficult to generate monetization of those audiences now that's not a revelation but it's interesting when you start looking at some of the data how big the disparity Uh, really shaped. And then so when we started getting into some of the content, we had sessions and deep dives on the Malaysian market, the South Korean market. Uh, We had a deep dive of compare and contrast the different ways um, the sports business works in Australia, China, and Southeast Asia, I believe, off the top of my head. And you started to get a, a real pretty clear picture of just how fragmented it is and how each market is in such a different space and time. The, the maturity of the market in terms of where the revenue is coming from is in different places. The adoption of, of say, media rights at scale with some of the major broadcasters in a different place. Yeah, and I mean, there is some consistencies. The consistency is across Asia, the Asia-Pacific region and the Southeast Asian region. Sports is massive. You know, sports fandom is off the charts. I remember talking to the guys at Liverpool because we had the CEO of Liverpool FC um, speaking at the event, and they were talking about some incredible stories about when they've been to Thailand and also in Singapore that fans are lining the streets to get us just to get a glimpse of the teams. So, there is a massive sports marketplace and opportunity, but they're finding everyone who tries to build a business in those markets are finding it incredibly difficult to scale. Uh, and so, that's been really interesting just to, to bring that all together and bring a bit of a melting pot of people to talk about how they're approaching all those things. And you know whether we're getting close to a tipping point where um, monetization is going to be unlocked, where we start to see more advertising revenue start to come from other places as technology perhaps plays a big role. That was one of my points is I think ad technology and personalization will start to ramp up some of those costs per thousands. But yeah, it's it's an, inter- it's an interesting place where there's a lot of interest in sports, a lot of interest in international sports, But um, a lot of growth in both monetization and also for the domestic sports properties in those markets.
0: Well, that was going to be the question I was going to ask is it must be difficult for the international development of certain sports. You just start thinking about time zones and some of the struggles about, you know, are fans going to ever be able to watch the game live? And if they can't watch the game live, how do you sort of drive that interest or maintain parity? So I'd just be curious to know from an international perspective, sort of what were kind of the insights that were given there?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the, the the grand scheme of it is that there is, is a huge audience that does love football, but most of the fa- the top tier, most of the fans um, follow Premier League you know, across the Southeast Asian market and they don't actually follow the domestic teams, uh, domestic leagues nearly as much, which I can talk I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but that was one thing that, that sort of shone. Uh, NBA is obviously massive in China and indeed basketball is big in a lot of the Southeast Asian markets. Um, but they're only in a sort of a developmental stage with some of the the leagues that exist there. There's actually an the East Asian Super League that's coming into the market that is looking to kind of create a bit like a Champions League vibe for for um, basketball, which some people think could be a really exciting opportunity to bring some of those markets together. Um, but for the, for the international sports properties, I think a lot of them, to be honest, are still scratching their heads on how to break that market they've got presence they've got some deals in place from broad with broadcasters from your more sort of pan-international businesses like maybe being in sports quite a big player but even talking to some of the guys on the ground there's there's some international sports that really don't have the coverage they that that really correlates with the fandom because there's only certain a certain amount of um, coverage available on some of those more linear networks where sports is is mainly housed so you, you don't have those big global streaming players in that market yet, right? Netflix is, the, is there, obviously, but the major, you know, you think about Paramount, and you think about what we're seeing in the US and all those other major streaming players, they don't really play there yet. They're not not there. Maybe in a few years, that, and that's what people are hopefully getting excited about. But for now, um, sports uh, availability is limited to the major broadcasters um, that exist in those markets, and most of those, I guess, well-oiled sports broadcasters uh, are few and far between. If you look market by market by market, uh, you know some markets like um, you know Singapore, obviously, where there's a higher affluency, there's more there's more activity. But in other markets like Malaysia, they're only just sort of scratching the surface on um, how to bring all that to life.
0: Well, that was one of the things that makes me think back to when we spoke to Sanjay Gupta at Hotstar in India, just talking about kind of the lack of technology across India and, you know, streaming not necessarily always going to be the most reliable way of distributing content. So does that still seem like something that goes beyond, um, you know, just the Indian marketplace, but more largely across the APAC region? I know you mentioned Singapore is more up to speed than others, but is that something you think is probably potentially maybe that last hurdle to maybe realizing some of these opportunities?
1: Yeah, I think the the connectivity is still a major issue in in certain markets. Uh, although in some some areas in Asia, it's actually better than in the Western ones. It's quite a mixed bag. I was talking to uh, someone who works on a on a service provider side, and they said in many instances, actually, distributing across OTT is actually more expensive than distributing through traditional satellite or free-to-air means, uh, which kind of goes against the the whole story that we've been hearing for some time that, you know, OTT is a nice easy route to market for some of these players, particularly when you're um, delivering it at scale. So, yeah, the technology's now come a long way. Uh, It's not – it's now I don't – I didn't hear anyone talk about really holding it back. It's more the change of behavior that needs to develop. So shifting people from the use of – set-top boxes or um, or free-to-wear means and Lydia means to get them using more streaming-based products, that, um, that's a bit of a piece of work that's taking quite a while. We had a great session with, um, what's his last name? E- Ewan, I can't remember. The CEO of Astro, which I will look up just as I'm talking. And anyway, he was really good at sort of painting a picture, Ewan Smith. I thought it was Ewan Smith. But basically painting a picture of, they're based in Malaysia, one of the dominant platforms in Malaysia and they have still had to launch different products to serve different audience types. So they've launched basically like a, uh, what would you call like a KO sports equivalent, you know, in in Australia where they've got this sort of um, maybe slightly cheaper, more targeted streaming based product to sit alongside their more premium uh, pay, pay product, which is a septop box. And that has got over a decade's different uh, demographic, nearly 20 years older than accessing the the new streaming product. So it shows that they are really serving different types of audience groups um, if you have a more different streaming first product versus the more traditional one. And what was really interesting, so in Malaysia, where it's a 33 million population, they've got eight and a half, I think there's eight and a half million households. So you can do the math there. That's nearly four people uh, a house. And uh, what they were quite excited about, or what they've worked out, is that the Malaysian uh, Football League was largely untouched. was only being distributed a little bit on YouTube. Yet it's a massive marketplace um, that was just being underserved. So they've taken all those rights on, basically seen as a huge opportunity to almost build from scratch with a a pretty decent league in that market. And then they're looking to really ramp that up and put all the the infrastructure in place like you would see around, say, the Premier League in the UK, but from a domestic perspective, and try and grow that sport almost from the bottom up. Uh, And they see that as a huge opportunity and it's it's developing really well for them. So there is opportunities like that, I think, sprinkled across the whole Asia-Pacific region where there are sports properties that do need a bit of further support that could really take a step forward and, and take some of these regional sports properties up a gear to become really... Important domestic um, products, where at the moment most of the markets that we spoke to are the international sports properties are the ones that create the most fandom.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. But going to switch gears slightly to talk about one of the sessions you were personally involved with, and that was with the founder and CEO of One Championship. Chatry sit you thong which i'm hoping i pronounced correctly if i didn't do it right i'm an american just you know you can blame me throw me under the bus but i think i've got that right so nick maybe you could perhaps give a little bit of feedback on that my most basic kind of understanding Chatri is that he's got an ongoing beef with dana white which is very good for two mixed martial arts sports to to have the two leaders have a strong dislike for each other but maybe just give everybody a bit of a heads up on what they're going to be listening into
1: yeah, sure. Uh, I th- well, he's he trains. He says he trains every day. Still, uh, martial arts, and, and so for fifty two, he looks looks great. I wouldn't mess with him. That's for sure. I mean, Tatu is an amazing, amazing character. Um, he's actually the apprentice for Asia. So he. Uh, has his own show. He's done two seasons. We actually talk about that in the interview. So you think Alan, Alan Sugar, Donald Trump and Chatry are, are basically the the apprentices across the globe. Um, so he talks a bit about that and how the impact it's had. But we spent a lot of time really just discussing the growth of the One Championship and particularly what's driving its media growth and how it's being consumed and also its it's growth into the US. They did a deal with Prime Video, which has given them uh, a platform to grow uh, and connect with audiences there. They did some live events and they blew themselves away with how big and how crazy the fandom was uh, around those live events so i quite i talked to Chachi talk about them, their strategy their financial strategy they're looking to surpass 100 million in revenue and become profitable be profitable by next year they've got some major investments from all the sort of major investors you could think of across ports whether they come from qatar from us and and further afield so they're well backed he talks about the fact they were in deep trouble sort of in covid times and have have just shot on afterwards, and now and are, are, are absolutely flying high. Um, basically, I think he said to me something like they were they shut down nearly three times. I think was through the through the journey, if I remember correctly, over the last sort of ten years. So, look, there's a lot to take away from from Chatri. He's got a lot of energy. Talks very openly, very passionately about not only what they've achieved, but the opportunity um, that indeed building a, a product like this has taken and, and sort of the, the difficulty he's had with it. Um, but also about, you know, how they're trying to compete and rival with some of the others like the UFC and, and how to differentiate themselves from the others. Uh, he's got some pretty punchy comments. Uh, so uh, I, I did mean that uh, pun intended, of course. Um, uh, that that are, I think definitely worth worth taking a listen to.
0: Awesome. Well, hopefully everyone you're going to sit through that and enjoy it. I know I'm going to look forward to hearing a little bit of trash talk, a little bit of smack talk just to get my day going. So please sit in and we'll enjoy the episode.
1: Tree, welcome to the stage and great to have you uh, at Sports Pro APAC now before we get started I th- well to get started i think the best thing we'll be to, to to do is just to give us a bit of a scene set where are you today with one championship
2: so heading into the pandemic uh we i was very worried my team and i were very very worried because every country across asia was shut down and, and borders and we physically couldn't do events but it ended up being a, a big blessing the last three years we've hit record high viewership numbers across all platforms whether it's tv digital or social and Nielsen came out with an industry report about a year ago naming the top 20 largest global sports properties. And we were very surprised that we were ranked number five uh, in terms of viewership and engagement across all the different platforms. And so, um, you know, I would say that, you know, we're going from high to high. And this year we're hitting another record high, um, in uh, every country that we're in. Literally all of our charts have gone vertical, um, in terms of viewership metrics, uh, that we, that I track every week. Um, so it's been, um, I don't know, I feel like I'm forced Gump of sports because I just keep running and, and good things keep on happening. I don't know, you know,
1: kind of lucky. But here's some context for some of those numbers you mentioned, Tree. So um, talk us
2: through what the, what we're seeing here. So these are our, our, our growth rates across uh, the different platforms and the metrics that we, we track internally. And these are all organic. And it's, whenever I see these charts, I always, uh, I, I really feel grateful because 2014 where these charts start like i was about to quit um i'd lost millions of dollars there's nothing happening at all in the company and uh we weren't even on tv barely and at the end of 2014 after three years of doing this uh, even though i'm a lifelong martial artist and martial arts my greatest passion in life um and i thought it would be super easy so i was naive I, i have no sports media background or no media industry background i'm just a hardcore entrepreneur i thought hey, it's super, it must be super easy to rally 4 billion people on the continent of Asia around martial arts, which is Asia's greatest cultural treasure, and then create Asia's first global sports property. But at the end of the 2014, nothing was happening. So I've, you know, some startups, when they start, they immediately explode. There's a great product market fit. Ours was the exact opposite. I went to every single broadcaster in Asia, they rejected me. Every single brand, government, investors, I met with over 100 investors, they all rejected me even potential employees and athletes. I mean, I, I, you know, there was no startup or sports ecosystem at all in Asia at the time uh, in 2011. And um, so it was like disaster after disaster, failure after failure. And then finally at the end of 2014, I, I called uh, my mother. Uh, she never wanted me to start one championship in the first place. And she's this very conservative Japanese lady And I said, mom, I'm I'm thinking about quitting. And she said, oh great, why don't you just quit? And I was shocked because I'm like, I thought at least she would say, hey, keep on fighting or something. I think that's what moms do best. They know reverse psychology. So after I hung up on the phone, I'm like, no, no, there's no way in hell I'm gonna quit this thing because this is my greatest love. Martial arts is what I love. And then we got very lucky. And and suddenly after that phone call, I I really said to myself, there's no way I'm gonna quit. I, I wrote down, I remember, See, on, the, on on day one of our business plan, the mission has always been, and even to this day, it's not about selling pay-per-view or making money or all that kind of stuff. I know it sounds kind of odd, but our mission was literally very simple, was unleashing real-life superheroes who ignite the world with hope, strength, dreams, and inspiration. And I wanted to create a, you know, a global property that celebrated values that every family could celebrate with their kids and grandkids. I wanted to unleash real-life superheroes who everyone could rally behind. And I wanted to tell their stories of overcoming adversity, poverty, tragedy, impossible odds, whatever it may be, to inspire humanity uh, to dream more, do more, be more in life. And then at that moment, I knew that this was my why and and there was no way I was gonna quit. And then these these metrics, I mean, these things, I can't even visualize these numbers, you know, like 2014, if you said to me, our organic video views online on digital and social would be up 124,000 X. I don't even know what that means, right? 200,000 video views going to 25 billion. You can visualize 30% growth or 20% growth, but you, it's very hard. Even 10X growth you can, maybe 100X you can, but 1000X, 10,000X, 100,000X, it, it just, I don't understand the math. Um, you know, it's, it's still
1: mind-boggling to me. So one of the things we've talked about uh, to kick off the to kick off the event is that monetization of audiences, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, is really difficult. You, you can get this huge scale of numbers because the marketplaces, the consumer base is three times the size of US and, and the European markets combined. But the challenge is there's not that media rights market like you have in, say, the US that we've um, we talked about before, actually, when we came on stage. So how do you turn huge audiences like that into something that can really drive the business side for you? Because it's one thing to get the audience, it's a whole nother ballgame to turn
2: that into something of value. Yeah. So since day one, I've, I wanted to create a global sports property. You know, I did, Again, I didn't know we we're going to be top five in the world, but I just said, I want to create a global sports property with the very, very best world championship martial artists. Because one thing I know, human beings all over the world want to watch the best. So it doesn't matter if it's racing, or if it's running, or if it's boxing, or if it's swimming, whatever it is, people want to watch the best. And I knew the continent of Asia had the very best martial arts, but I also was hunting all over the world. So today our roster is truly 50-50 in terms of Eastern Hemisphere and Western Hemisphere, uh, a, rep- a great representation of, of the global landscape, actually, in terms of populace. And uh, um, of course, monetization has been very difficult, but uh, especially in the initial years, one thing that was very fortunate what or had been very fortunate is that investors finally, some of the smartest, investors in the world, like Sequoia Capital out of Silicon Valley, uh, Tomasic and GIC out of Singapore, the Sovereign Wealth Funds, the Sovereign Wealth Fund out of QIA, smart money, sports investors from America, like Guggenheim and Vulcan invested in a company. And they really believed in creating a platform, first of all, creating a brand that was truly global and mainstream representing the very best of humanity, but the very best in the world in sports in, in fighting. And then a platform that co- creates content engines that can create these massive numbers. And then of course, it just takes time to build a platform. I literally went country by country and today we're broadcasting 179 countries live every Friday. So we have, we have events every Friday in prime time in Asia. And it's just the beginning because when I look at Europe, when I look at US, it's it's massive and our fan base is growing. Like all these numbers here, the, these vertical numbers are, we, we see the vertical uh, exponential growth also in Europe, also in North America. So I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity now. Like I said, I got very, very lucky. I didn't know the scale was going to be this this, this steep or that it would be this um, big. But now it's very clear that European broadcasters, American broadcasters are very interested because they want to ride these numbers. And our audience is 90% millennial Gen Z. So it's the most coveted demographic possible. And, and combat sports, I mean, in the world of sports, combat sports is definitely the fastest growing segment globally. There's no question about it. You know, I mean, if you look at soccer, maybe it's growing 1% a year, um, because it's fully penetrated. You've got basketball, maybe a few percent a year. Uh, um, American football down 1%, up 1%. You know, the only, the only, um, properties that have these kind of metrics are like literally UFC and one, um, because the millennials and Gen Z have spoken. They, they, they love it. They love combat sports. But I also think why do I say I got lucky is because, you know, the smart mobile device is the first window of media consumption today. So you can't see the tennis ball, the soccer ball. You can't see the ping pong ball. You can't see any kind of ball on your mobile device very well. So you're, even the highlights, if say the tennis US Open highlights, you can't see it. So you, your, your, your natural inclination is to scroll past them. But combat sports, you can see a flying head kick, spectacular kick. And then we tell a little 30 second, a little 30 second story and you're suddenly inspired or you're suddenly excited or, you're, or you laugh. So we got very lucky that the whole world starts off their day with the mobile device and they end their day with the mobile device. But every other income sport property has a big problem. They, they can't, it's not, it's not fun or exciting or even viewable on a smart mobile device, whereas combat sports is. And that's, I think, that is one of the big drivers. And obviously, it's very exciting. There's great stories, et cetera. But um, we're very lucky with that, right? And to answer your question, monetization, you know, we're, we're going to cross 100 million in revenues this year. But um, when I look at the next, um, 12 months, next three years, next five years, we're going to pass profitability. So we've been investing in this massive platform for 11 plus years, broadcast live with our brand, with our, with our roster, with our, um, platform, our, our, our distribution deals, all that. And now we're starting to see, um, real monetization hockey stick. Actually, now our revenues are starting to look like, like this, but again, we're very lucky. Investors understood the vision, gave us time and capital. I mean, we raised over $500 million to build this platform. It wasn't again. It wasn't until year five or year six when investors got interested, um, after our metric started ticking off. Um, but we've been very, very lucky to have some of the smartest money investors, you know, in the world. You said you're lucky, but I
1: think a bit of hard work's gone into that as well, Chattery. Um, but let's look at some of the other numbers I think are quite interesting when you compare yourself on the, the global scale with some of the other sports properties as well. You talk about the broadcast reach as well as uh, organic video views right up there. What story do they tell for you? Or what, Are these numbers aligned with, you know, you're, still, you're quite shocked on how things are performed. Yeah. So just talk us <coughs> through what your your take is on those numbers. So, so
2: about a year ago, Nielsen came out with a global industry report on the top 20 largest sports properties and my team and i were genuinely shocked we, we knew we we're going very fast but we didn't know we we're number five in the world or whatever it is you know i mean on tv alone all over the world again it's 179 countries broadcast every week on the biggest platforms around the world uh we're top four and then on organic video views uh, online we're number two in the world and there's a bunch of other metrics that Nielsen came out with but give or take we're about a five number five in the world in terms of size and and that was very shocking right um, but even so when you look at all this data all these numbers it doesn't It doesn't feel real until you actually go on ground. Like when we went to the US for the first time in May, we had our very first event on ground, completely sold out several weeks in advance. The stadium was going ballistic. I mean, I couldn't believe the energy. They were chatting for our heroes. And some of our heroes didn't even speak English, but they were were going crazy. We blew out Twitter numbers, our social media, on the entire country of the US were number one above NBA and all this stuff. And so these are the things that, it's great to have all these big numbers, but, Are you resonating with pop culture are you there every day in the in in the water water cooler talk and in china uh china they won their first world title in one and cctv5 the central government came out and said you know china has finally won its first world title in one and when he won tang kai won and he came back home to china like literally thousands of people showed up Mm -hmm. and we've seen this effect over and over now in different countries uh whether it's india whether it's the us and, and that I would say has been the hardest part of this journey is once upon a time in the early days when I put the belt on somebody, you know, e- even the stadium wasn't clapping. Today, you have entire countries where we trend number one. Actually, we're trending number one. When you, won the, when you won the world title, it was shot out of Singapore. The event was in Singapore broadcast around the world. In China, we were trending number one on Douyin, Kuaishou, Weibo, and all the other platforms, number one. And that was shocking. A country of 1.4 billion. What does it mean to trend number one? It means everybody's got to be watching, but everyone's going to be talking about it. And that belt for the central government to come out and say, hey, we won the world title, China. It's like a gold, Olympic gold medal. And when we first started out, trust me, like the stadium wasn't even clapping. You know, I would give the belt and it meant nothing. Today, you know, the belt makes entire countries weep for joy. And and that is something that you can have all these beautiful numbers and these hakechic charts, but if you're not resonating with pop culture. And I think our, our US event really showed us that power and hence we're quadrupling the number of events in the US next year uh, at a minimum. So let's talk about the U.S. a little bit then. Um, you've touched upon a few key
1: components there, but one of the key components of that growth and the opportunity is your partnership with Amazon or Prime Video. Um, just talk us through what that relationship is and, and uh, what well, that's delivering for you to have that broadcast reach on probably number yeah. two streaming
2: platform, number one streaming number platform one. in the, it's in the market. number one globally. It's 200 million subscribers. So Amazon, when we first struck the partnership, um, it took about two years to get the deal done. And we went live several months ago. And um, we didn't have full understanding, you know, because we're prime time live in the U.S. So 8 p.m. Standard Time on Friday, even though we're shooting out of Asian locations, whether it's, again, Philippines or or Thailand or Japan or or China, et cetera, um, we're shooting at eight in the morning and beaming live. So one problem is do you have to eight in the morning, how do you get 10,000, 20,000 people to come attend? And in Thailand, seven in the morning, actually, because there's a one hour back behind, behind Singapore. And um, then on top of it, you have to, when you beam live Friday, Eastern Standard Time, you have to deliver ratings. And Marie Donahue, who's the global head of sports there, has um, you know, said publicly many times um, that she's, um, you know, partnership has exceeded expectations and it's been a wild success. Uh, and that also, again, gave us a lot, of, um, a lot of confidence, you know, to really crack the US market and go very big in it so you know it is our number one priority now in the entire company the u.s market yes we're and, and all the other countries we're we're kind of bau of course we're growing exponentially we're throwing events as i said every friday we're in asia prime time um but to really do it in the u.s right you know we have to be there on ground multiple events to be part of pop culture to crack it and, and my ambition is not just to be a sports prop in america i want to be top three i want to be when people say one i want it to be amongst nfl nba and one that, that is my vision for, you know, the next few years. Um, we're, I'm very grateful that Amazon um, also believes in this vision. And we're working together as a, a wonderful partnership. But we've been very lucky. You know, all over the world, all of our broadcast partners today are, are the biggest and best broadcasters in their regi- in their regions, in the countries. So in the in Middle East, it's being sports. In uh, Brazil, it's Globo. Um, in um, you know, uh, Australia at 7 Network, in Thailand, it's Channel 7. These are the biggest broadcasters in their respective countries. In Japan, it's Abima TV. Um, and all these, you know, have combined, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of viewers and subs. So we've been very, very lucky. So we'll come to some
1: questions from the audience. So drop your questions into the app, uh, Slido app, if you do have any for Chattery. Um, just talking about the audience scale, you mentioned that in the numbers, I think the, the numbers were north of 400 million of total reach, broadcast reach. Curious, which markets are those numbers mainly coming from? You've sort of touched upon
2: them. What, what are the top, say, three? China uh, is definitely our largest market in terms of numbers. I mean, even if you look, I mean, China is such a big market. When we have a Chinese athlete, one of our Chinese athletes, superstars competing, doesn't matter where he's, he or she's competing in, anywhere in the world, um, we will do a few billion organic video views that month out of China alone. It's just crazy. They just go crazy for it. Uh, and the content's really resonating. But of course, if I look at the the, the big chunks, it's going to be China. It's going to be um, ASEAN as a whole. Uh, it's going to be um, Europe and U.S. These are the big numbers for us. Um, uh, and and Latin America, that that kind of Western Hemisphere. And we haven't even started in the U.S. To be honest. So it's it's like I think U.S. is um, we're a nascent brand. No one knows who we are. Well, at least I mean, hardcore fans know who we are. But I'm not. We're not mainstream yet. But in other countries, we're we're definitely mainstream. Um, that's been a, the other surprising factors. You know, we've been number one in different countries, number one, full stop, international or local sports property um, in terms of viewership and engagement numbers. And that has also been very surprising. So one of the things we will be talking about more across the next two days is
1: about the a sports properties approach to building a direct relationship with a fan uh, versus using the third-party relationship. So we've talked about a lot of the major broadcast relationships or maybe social media, but what you can do to build a direct relationship with a consumer and a fan uh, to create a direct-to-consumer product, for example. Is that something that you guys have been focused on? Because we're also seeing in other sports properties a shift away from some of that, um, focusing less on going direct-to-consumer, more on the broadcast partnerships. What's your approach to that direct relationship with fans versus... Um, leaving it to those third party players. So the most important
2: thing for any sports property is two things to, to great fandom, ease of access and habituation. So ease of access, meaning that you're, you're, the content is available on every single platform. So if you're, and I'll use Thailand, where, where I'm originally from, Thailand, you cannot escape one championship every single day. It is in the news. It is in the gossip. It is in sports entertainment. It's in you know, the front page of the of the biggest newspapers, it's on TV all day, uh, you cannot escape it. So make, make the content ease of access as a fan. So as a current fan, but also a potential new fan. Then habituation, the fact that it's every Friday and, and our product is called One Friday Fights. So you as a fan don't have to even remember the day or date of our next event, you just know every Friday I'm gonna be hanging out with my friends or my family, or in a bar or at home uh, watching the content our live events, watching our heroes in in action. And so those are the two things, habitual and ease of access. And if you're able to create a habit and you're you're accessible everywhere, then it's super easy. I don't wanna say super easy, it took a look. I got my butt kicked for many years, but I'm saying now it feels like it's super easy. Now with the growth of mobile
1: uh, devices and digital generally in markets like Southeast Asia and indeed particularly across Asia, There's excitement and hope as well, probably, about the opportunities around e-commerce and around uh, generating uh, revenue through an opportunity through those sorts of channels. Do you see that as an area you're focused on, again, internally leading on the direct-to-consumer, or are you, again, leaving that to your partners to worry about?
2: No. So so historically, again, we're very lucky. Our investors allowed us to build this massive platform, build our brand, invest in our roster, invest in distribution, invest in our content engine. Only in the last year have we really gone after revenues. Now we're really, cause we're, we're hitting so much scale. So, I mean, you, you saw that video of Tang Kai returning home in China. We, in many countries like that. So for us to sell a million t-shirts in each of these countries is very, very easy. We haven't done it yet. We haven't started. So the monetization opportunity is massive. I mean, just, you know, you sell a million, do- a million t-shirts at $50 a pop in the U.S. and you sell, you know, a million T-shirts at $10 a pop in Philippines and, you know, whatever. In each of these countries, in China, uh, you, we should be able to do 50 million shirts, right? Um, the money just on a one single T-shirt is is massive. Um, but then, again, when we look at the global landscape, the fact that we're resonating in Europe, the fact that we're resonating in North America and South America, uh, you know, I see big media rights deals happening um, on that side of the world. While um, our D2C... Whether it's our video games, whether it's um, you know launching our 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 shirt, I mean our athleisure products, there's so many things that we literally haven't touched. That uh, that's why I said the, our revenues are going to hockey stick from here. So so we've talked about the obvious markets in terms
1: of Asia and indeed Western Europe. What are some other markets that are big international growth markets for you that perhaps would not be an obvious one for to some people?
2: Well, now that we're truly at global scale, you know, um, you look at the Western properties, they want to come to Asia. We're the exact opposite. You know, we, 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 uh, of course, Asia is a big, a big thing, but our priority now is uh, the Western hemisphere. We see massive opportunity because our our numbers, our fan numbers are just going vertical in Europe and North America and Latin America. So we really see that whole, uh, it's very interesting. And of course, the Middle East, you know, we, uh, Qatar Investment Authority, the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund owns a piece of one. Um, They want to bring, um, just like F1, they want to bring one championship to Doha. So we'll be there this year in December uh, with our first event on ground in the Middle East. But we're already broadcast every Friday on Bean Sports, um, which is about 60 million subscribers in the Middle East. So it's the biggest player by far in sports. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, uh, the, the, the journey, the hardest part of building a sports property from scratch is all those numbers and then having pop culture trending on number one on Twitter or whatever it is, and then fans reacting that way. The easy part is gonna be monetization because once you achieve that, you can. So I always say in the sports business, right, why is it that all these teams around the world, soccer teams, are losing money, and yet their valuations are going up 20, 30% a year? It's because popularity trumps profitability in this business because popularity precedes profitability. Meaning that if you have a very profitable sports property, but you're not popular anywhere. It doesn't, you're, you're, you're gonna go downhill. But if you're super popular and only increasing in popularity, whether you're making money today is irrelevant. You're gonna make money, right? And I think a proof point is one. I mean, we'll hit profit in the next 12 months, um, but it's been 11 year, and a half, 11 and a half year journey of increasing our popularity in all the different countries and around the world. So for me truly today, you know, we have 10 offices around the world, my team and I are literally in every, every time zone and, and, um, truly the world, I know it sounds trite, but truly the world has become our oyster. You know, before again, when I first started, it'd be like one country was our oyster or one region. But today where we sit, our numbers are literally exploding all over the world and, and, and popularity all over the world.
1: Before we move to the questions from the audience, I have to ask you, change tack a little bit and talk to, about The Apprentice. Obviously, you have uh, been The Apprentice for uh, for a couple of years. had a couple of seasons now, I believe. Um, talk us through why you took that on and how that experience has, has been.
2: Yeah, so um, The Apprentice um, it, you know, is the longest-running uh, reality show, I think 20 years in running, run by MGM. Amazon owns MGM. Uh, when um, MGM approached us about the potential idea of collaborating, I gave it a long thought because, you know, I ever have, have a very exhausting day job, but then for me to go on a, on a TV production set for four to eight hours a day, four to eight hours a day, in addition to my job, was exhausting. So season one was um, on Netflix all over the world and on Amazon Prime in the US. Season two comes out um, later this year. I don't want to say, never say never, but I do think this is my last season because it's just too tiring for me. Um, but let's see what happens because, you know, um, the powers that be in different distribution. They want more content. We've, we've talked a lot in the sports industry um,
1: about the benefit of documentaries and platform. Like Netflix is created with Drive to Survive for Formula One and, and other sports documentary series and how the impact they've had for those respective sports. It's not quite the same as sort of type of content to what you've been producing, but has it had a, do you think it's had a material effect on one ma- championship ma- brand?
2: Massive impact, okay? Because, you see, when I started one as a lifelong martial artist, I knew, I knew, and I still know in my heart that it's being misrepresented as a thuggery, violence, blood sport, angry, hatred kind of product that we see in the West. And that's not true. Like, I mean, why do millions of parents send their kids to martial arts schools all over the world? It's so their kids learn discipline or work ethic or courage or learning humility or, or honor like me. Like, that's why. It's, You know, I've been doing 38 years of martial arts. I train every day, even to this day. I train every day because it's just part of who I am and and what I love. And I think that's what I wanted to create was a very inspirational property that, that, again, inspired humanity so that when little kids put their posters of our heroes in their bedroom, parents are like, that's a great role model for you. Not that, you know, hey, take it down. Whereas I can tell you that if some of, the other combat sports properties, their biggest stars are toxic to to humanity, toxic to kill kid, kids. And and my my team and I, when we we meet every every we have a company meeting every month, we really take our voice in the world very seriously. Like how we behave and how our heroes behave, and the stories we tell directly impact how little boys treat little girls, how kids treat their parents, how how society what what society deems acceptable. Is it acceptable to beat your wife in public? Is it acceptable to to, to rape women? Is it acceptable that women uh, still suffer from gender inequality around the world? You know, these are very important philosophical things and we have a direct impact because kids all over the world, music, sports, and entertainment is how kids learn, apart from their family, about what's cool, what's acceptable, what's not. And so, you know, my team and I have this very deep sense of responsibility, okay, We're one of the largest sports properties in the world. How do we want to use our voice to impact society and culture at large around the world? And this is something very, very deep for me that I really care deeply about.
1: Storytelling is a huge part of that, telling the stories of your organization, but also the athletes. And and one of the questions that's come up is about having the benefit of being a challenger brand in a market like the US and the stories you're going to tell. Do you see yourself as a challenger brand, I suppose? And do you feel there's a benefit of being as such? Um, in the
2: U.S. market. Okay. Uh, so, so, so obviously in the U.S., we're definitely a, a challenger brand, but we, in, in many countries, we've been a, we, we are number one, we've been able to unseat the incumbents, right? Because of our DNA, our approach, our content engine, our brand, our platform, et cetera. Um, if you even look at the, the, the list of brands that have partnered with one, like sponsored one, I mean, it's like Microsoft, it's like Toomey, it's, it's, you know, Fortune 500 companies, it's not niche, male oriented t- testosterone brands. These are, you know, real things. But of course, one championship is 11 and a half years old. The UFC is 30 years old. But if you look at the world's a global duopoly. If you look at the Nielsen numbers, we're the largest player by far in the, in the East. They're the largest player by far in the West. It, it's, it's, and I don't mind it being global duopoly, you know? Because all the other players are not even on the top 10, 20 list, right? Uh, that, that Nielsen came out with. So for me, um, I, I've been a challenger since day one. When I started one in 2011, UFC had an office in Asia in 2009 in Beijing. And everyone told me, I'm going to get crushed. I'm going to get crushed because they already started it. They're already a $2 billion company. You're nothing. And today we're neck and neck with them on, on, on most metrics or, or surpassed them in some metrics. Look, I think that's a great spot to wrap up. Thank you very much, Chatri, for, for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it.